Welcome to Mic Drop, the podcast where relevancy is irrelevant and we don't give a shit about your feelings. Ladies and gentlemen, as always, it's both an honor and a pleasure to welcome my next guest to the podcast. He is the host of the Modern Wisdom podcast. He's also the Calvin Klein underwear model that will unfriend you on your birthday. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the stage, Chris Williamson. <laughs> Hi, mate. How are you? Good. I appreciate you coming. Uh, I, I have to ask the uh, the unfriending on the birthday thing. Where did that come from? And, and uh, please tell me your take on that. Basically, when Facebook used to be a big deal, that there would be you accumulated people on your Facebook that you didn't actually know. It wasn't a thing that you did for friends, right? Before Instagram or Twitter, you didn't just have something where you could accumulate people that you'd met. And it just, I, I found out that as you went through people's birthdays, you would often find, oh, that's someone that I met once in a nightclub five years ago. I've never spoken to them. I can barely remember who they are. So you can just get rid of them. And it's a nice little way to keep on cold. it is a bit of a shitty move i suppose <laughs> but it's like happy birthday i don't yeah. know you anymore yeah. but it's a thing did uh i mean did that strategy come from something or was it just something that you kind of i've been a club of? promoter for uh 15 years so i've run nightclubs and uh one of the weapons that we had for filling nightclubs was a big facebook account which mm. meant that managing facebook friends there's a limit of five thousand facebook friends which m most people don't get up to but if you're aggressively adding everybody in your local area in a desperate attempt to get them to come to nightclubs you you, you sometimes hit that so yeah. that was a strategy that we had that was mostly for the boys that was for the managers that work for us how to keep your your friends list yeah. now and the main reason for that was that once someone's 22 and they've left university they're now off doing real world stuff they're not coming and partying on a wednesday yeah uh, so they needed to they needed to delete people on their birthdays yeah that's a trip uh all right a little bit of lightning round what is your favorite childhood memory Playing cricket uh, down at Loughborough, which is the England Academy. I still don't understand how, how the fuck cricket works. Can you give a, a Reader's Digest 30-second synopsis on, on how it works, or is that impossible? I can do it. I can try. Uh, 11 players on each team. The team that is at bat has a number of wickets, so each player can be out once. That's by bowling through the little set of stumps or by running them out or by catching the ball. And the team plays until the batting team is out. That's 10 wickets through. The other team goes into bat. Whichever team scores the highest number of runs wins. You have boundaries, which is four along the ground or six if it hits the boundary without going without touching the ground. But what you can sometimes have is games that have two sets of innings and a time limit. So you can have five-day games of cricket. And this is why it's so brilliant, right? It's a game which is only <laughs> played in fantastic weather. The slightest sign of rain and or darkness the game stops really uh, it only exists during the most climate uh, summer months for us here in england and you can bring your own booze and sit on the grass on the sidelines huh. pretty good what, uh wind will wind cancel a game i've never had a game cancel because of wind but we don't have extreme weather in the uk it's just yeah. sort of uh like melancholy miserable yeah. yeah uh how does it uh, compare to quidditch in your opinion <laughs> that's far less magical yeah i can imagine uh what is the uh the biggest difference from from your experience and perspective between the uk and, and america like what's the first Beyond thing the guns yeah i mean i guess just generally speaking what comes to mind so one of the big things i've realized since being here is that you guys for all that people can accuse america of being the 
land of oppression and 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 holding people down and prejudice and stuff like that there is still a huge blue sky vision and helicopter thinking people really believe that they can do things with their life and that they can raise up themselves and they can build businesses in the uk there's a huge sense of tall poppy syndrome uh, i don't know how many friends the people listening have got in the uk but a lot of them self-deprecating humor satire sarcasm like that kind of is our shtick and that doesn't just come from nowhere. That comes from what it's like in school. So if you start to deviate in school, if you start to do different things, a lot of the time people really sort of try and discourage you from doing that, which at the time feels a, a little bit sucky, right? It, it doesn't encourage or engender a sense of people believing that they can do whatever they want to do, be whatever they want to be. Um, what that does mean when you grow up is that you've got your feet firmly planted on the ground that you're very, very sort of grounded and you don't get beyond yourself. Now, conversely, what I see happening in America is that kids, when they're in school, you know, you have real American hero stories of people that have built businesses, huge amounts of startups and entrepreneurs and stuff like that. And that means that kids believe that they can do a lot of things, they can grow up and do a lot. However, when they get into adulthood, sometimes certain types of personalities notice a delta between what they were promised as a child and what they've had as an adult. Mm -hmm. And I think that this is where some of the victim mentality uh, can come from. We don't have that quite so much in the UK because your high hopes for your life were beaten out of you at the age <laughs> of five years old in the school ground. Yeah. Uh, so there, there, that's the main thing that I've noticed. I really, really, personally for me, I really love how much encouragement there is in America. I think it's great. Yeah. If you get the right set of friends, they just want to see you win. And yeah. um, that's not as prevalent in the UK. If I could port something over, it would absolutely be that. Yeah. So, I mean, it seems to me like they're, they're both kind of extremes that way though. You know, it's like there, it'd be nice if there was more of a happy medium because I, I agree in that you know, there's a certain sense of entitlement that, uh, that you get out of that. Everybody's a winner and you can do whatever you want. And, and, you know, you're a, you're a hero. I mean, you see it on something as simple as say American idol auditions where, you know, these kids have been told their entire lives that they're amazing singers and they're fucking terrible. Uh, you know, and then they show up there and coincidentally, you've got a, a Brit that goes on there and, and sweeps the fucking leg and, and tells them that they're garbage. Uh, on the same token, you don't want to crush somebody's spirit, especially as a young child. Uh, you know, so to me that there needs to be maybe a, maybe a happy meeting. Maybe that's where Canada comes in. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> probably not. Uh, what's the weirdest thing that we eat here that like back in England, you'd be like, what the fuck? <sighs> That is a really good question. Um, I'm not sure about weird, but if I could bring one thing over, it would be Mexican food. Yeah. Like we, because you, you're, the um, food that you often have is from the immigrants that you get into your country, and England doesn't have a lot of Mexicans. We do have a lot of good <laughs> Indian food. If I could swap foods, if I could swap yeah. cultures, I would have the like groundedness and the blue sky vision. If I could yeah. swap foods, I'd give you good Indian food, and I'd take some Mexican food yeah. in return. Yeah, no, it makes good sense. Yeah, I, I assume you're a curry fan then? Oh, yeah, huge, yeah. huge. Is there a, a go-to spot uh, in your hometown for, for good curry? Or, yeah, or there's you... a place called My Delhi. Uh, so I'm from Newcastle, which is the final city before Scotland. It's like where Winterfell was based in Game of Thrones, so it's kind of dark oh, and, and, and cold and a little yeah. bit miserable. But we do have uh, some really good, legit spots. They just won Best Curry House in the UK on some BBC uh, TV program. Oh really? Uh, were were you a a fan of Game of Thrones? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, the final season just feels like it tarnished everything for everyone, right? Good How thing. would you have liked to have seen it end? 
oh god i don't know i'm not a writer I, were you hoping I, she would have made it i don't know i didn't care about the fact that she died i think my problem was that I didn't see how Daenerys, like she arrives at King's Landing and she sees the city. And then there's this, there wasn't enough foreshadowing that she might go completely crazy, right? I, I, I know that the Targaryens were supposed to be mad and that there was this sort of madness of the dragon and all of this sort of thing. And her brother had been a bit crazy and there was a genetic pool the size of a fucking five pence piece. Like I'm aware, right? That there was things <clears throat> sown. But way too many open loops. You know, what happened with uh, Jack and Hagar, the dude that was training Arya? Um, why was it that all of the uh, Dothraki got sent into battle, obliterated, and then somehow resurrected when she won <laughs> and was holding her thing in front? Just a ton of, yeah. like, holes. And it didn't feel satisfying to me. And it yeah. was all, yeah, it, it's such a shame as well. And you're now seeing the aftershock of that, that, all of the different seasons that they've been thinking about releasing after this, uh, it's in production, it's out of production, something's been cancelled or it's been postponed. I just think that there's a ton of of problems in that franchise, which sucks because the first, what, five seasons was probably the best TV that I've ever seen in my yeah. life. No, I, I don't disagree with that uh, in, in every way. I, I do think that they're, uh, it, it was almost like they just tried to finish it too fast. You know, it's like this is the last season and it's like they tried to jam too much shit in the last uh, you know, last handful of episodes without uh, without really thinking about it. But maybe, I mean, who knows, maybe it was a budget thing or, I mean, you never know with those guys. But uh, what is your normal morning routine when you are not traveling? Uh, wake up, morning walk. What time? Uh, around about seven-ish, depends on what I've been doing. I was with Michael Malice last night discussing this recent uh, school shooting until like <clears> one <throat> in the morning last night. So that was today was a little bit later. Get up, morning walk, come back. I don't have caffeine for about the first 90 minutes of the day. Um, salt in water, so element salt is what I use, but any normal salt will do you. Um, journal, meditate, breath work, read, then get into the day. That's yeah. usually my, my perfect day. The one non-negotiable is the walk. Really? Yeah. Rain or shine. How uh, about how far or how long? 15 minutes. Around oh, okay. About. Yeah. No music? It's, no. Silence. Yeah. Just thinking, just letting whatever thoughts come and go. It's like for somebody that doesn't have that as a part of their daily routine. And if, I understand that people have got kids and, and jobs that start at insane hours of the morning and things like that. But even five minutes, if you can just get out, even if you've got a garden, to get out and just do a couple of laps of the garden for five minutes, yeah. the difference that you'll feel is unbelievable and there's i'd felt this um in myself right so i had done this for a long time because it was just something that i'd always done and then uh, since then people like andrew huberman who's a, a big sort of health and fitness yeah. podcaster um he's talking about how it down regulates the amygdalas there's this thing called passive gaze that you have as you ambulate through the landscape and it causes a whole bunch of things to occur that can help you it, it, sometimes most people wake up on certain days and they have this sort of ambient anxiety. It's the wrong side of the bed sort of scenario. Mm -hmm. And for me, uh, going on the walk is like shaking the Etch-a-Sketch. And it just... Hmm. How, how long? I know you said you've been doing it a long time. How long have you been doing Five it? years, six years, really? something like that. Um, do you do that yeah. even when you travel? Like if you're at a hotel, you still go for... Yep. Really? Yep. That's yep. cool. Non-negotiable. Yep. 
That's interesting. What are the two key components for canine success? That's effective training and proper nutrition. Fueled by Team Dog brings those two components to your family and best friend. The perfect nutritional balance that results in a higher mental acuity, energy, overall vitality, and even an improved appearance. Every product you will find in my company's store was born from the battlefield and not from the boardroom. Let my life's work help you become your dog's hero. Do you have an RV or a camper? You should check out Ghostbed's RV mattress. You can get the all foam or hybrid version, and it's perfectly sized to fit your RV, camper, or trailer. It's way better than what you're sleeping on now with exclusive cooling technology to keep you nice and cool throughout the night. Right now, you can get 30% off the RV mattress by using code MICDROP. As you guys know, I uh, focus on health and uh, fitness. And one of the main components of uh, keeping up with health and fitness is proper supplementation. Uh, you know, when I'm on the go, if I don't have time to, to make a, a real food meal, uh, I really like this new uh, couple of products from Equip Foods, <clears throat> Prime Protein. Uh, it comes in chocolate, vanilla, strawberry. It's a grass-fed beef isolate protein. It provides uh, complete protein. One scoop of it is equivalent to four ounces of grass-fed beef. Uh, which means that it's also far less likely to cause gastrointestinal problems. Uh, it, it also contains collagen and gelatin that helps repair your joints and soft tissues the way plant protein, in fact, will not. Um, it's most often used as a meal replacement uh, post-workout, uh, or you can even throw it in uh, baked goods like pancakes or muffins or you know things of that nature. Um, on the same vein of, of collagen is they also have a complete collagen product. Uh, it's just made with one ingredient and that's 100% grass-fed bovine collagen. Uh, each scoop provides 15 grams of collagen as well as 15 grams of protein. Uh, and there's a number of clinical studies that show that collagen actually improves the health of your joints, gut lining, connective tissues, and your skin. Uh, most people, myself included, will use uh, a scoop of that collagen protein with their morning coffee uh, or in a smoothie uh, or any type of breakfast item drink-wise. Um, the second most common is to add a scoop of that uh, collagen uh, protein product to the, the prime protein post-workout shake to double down on uh, both protein and collagen. So uh, equipfoods.com forward slash mic drop all caps. Uh, and that code again is Mike Drop for 20% off your entire order at equipfoods.com. All right, so you're from uh, Newcastle originally. Uh, if you could just kind of give us a brief rundown on uh, on your childhood siblings, what uh, what the overall experience was like, positive or negative? Yeah, so I'm an only child, uh, mm. which I, I guess might show in that you think you're going to do a podcast, <laughs> which is all about you <laughs> interviewing other people. Um, so... The northeast of the UK is very much a working class area, spit and sawdust. Uh, the town that I grew up in was uh, famous only for having the highest teen pregnancy rating in the UK. <laughs> did you contribute uh, and, to that? Uh, I did not, but then it <laughs> lost that title, sadly. So it didn't even have that after a little while, uh, which was a shame. Yeah. Um, state primary, state secondary, state sixth form. So very, very sort of normal working class upbringing. Um, but always felt a little bit discordant um, when I was in school, bullied a good bit. Didn't sp I don't have the accent of where I'm from, um, despite being from the, the, the sort of same <clears> class. And uh, yeah, always felt a bit isolated. And that was played upon more, I guess, by the fact that I was an only child. So you don't have that sort of 
team fallback support system that you would and you're always under socialized too there's there was maybe i don't know like just a you know that salt bay guy the guy that yeah. goes over with the snake oh, yeah. and sprinkles it i think it was like that amount of autism like just that much <laughs> like that was the amount of yeah, autism that, I, that I got yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> which i actually think is a competitive advantage like if you Agreed. get the right amount um, yeah. but uh, yeah so school was kind of a bit of a um a bit of a mystery to me a little bit i was used to look at the kids and and think about what it was that they were doing that was why they were popular or well liked and i would i would uh, fixate on strange things like the way that they tied their shoes or the type of tie knot that they had or the way that their hair was done or the way that they held their bag so i would always be trying to sort of deconstruct like what is it that's causing them because i i want to have friends and i I don't feel like i have friends and i didn't ever realize it was the fact that they were able to connect with people because socially they was pretty well settled um so that was that was just generally looking back i guess like an interesting formative experience and then uh i went to university Uh, college was good so that would for us college is 17 18 years old i went to uni and then started running uh nightclubs and that sort of really pivoted my life and, and and changed the the direction yeah you mentioned uh the you don't have the accent of uh of that area i find i'm curious to me, the the differences in accent uh, within the UK are much more subtle and nuanced than they are, say, in the United States, where you've got Boston versus Midwest versus South versus California. Like those are, are pretty distinct. Do they seem that distinct to somebody from the UK, where it's like, oh, yeah, that guy's from there, and, and it's way different, or is it just because I, I, you know, like we don't hear it that much, where it doesn't seem, it just seems like it's much more of a slight difference. If I was able to lay you out a selection box of a bunch of different accents and I was able to to put them in front of you, I think that you would go, oh, holy fuck, yeah, I didn't know about these people. Yeah. So Newcastle, where I'm from, which is where our equivalent of Jersey Shore was filmed, uh, that was, <laughs> that's, that's very distinct. Um, Liverpool, where Darren Till is from, the UFC fighter, yeah. super distinct. And that's only 200 miles away. The, the fascinating thing you have in the UK is because it's such – the population density of the UK is 10 times that of the US – right? So we've got one-fifth or less than one-fifth the number of people, but 10 times the population density. So it's just so crammed together on this tiny little island, which means that you can travel for 50 miles and have a very, very different accent, which is yeah. really, really fascinating. And everything's just super, super condensed. So yeah, I, I would be able to uh, lay you out a yeah. smorgasbord of, <laughs> of, of British people, none of which sound like the sort of limey tea drinking fish and chips. Like, oh, white governor. Yeah. Like, none of them sound like that. They all sound like different versions. Yeah, that's wild shit. Um, is, is there a, a food from back home that you miss the most or that's like classically British that uh, is kind of your jam? There's some sort of homely stuff, I guess. You know, shepherd's pie and Sunday lunch. We do better breakfasts than you guys. Our breakfasts shit all over America um, <laughs> because you know a full English breakfast is about as legit as it gets. And yeah. then what all is uh, in that? <clears throat> yeah, yeah, yeah. What, yeah. what what all is in a, a legit English breakfast? So you would go two fried eggs, couple of hash browns, uh, streaky bacon. Beans, mushrooms, maybe a, a sort of a grilled tomato slice. And then you're getting into that, – that's sort of you, your foundation. And then you're getting into like adding little bits on the side. So you might have some more potato hash. You might have maybe some sort of corned beef. Uh, but that would, be, that would be your basis to it. But it's not, it's not in a – you don't get it in a fucking tortilla. 
yeah. right? It's not it's not wrapped in something. It's not presented with. There's nothing. There shouldn't be anything green on your plate for breakfast. Is the British <laughs> way? Uh, what, what is uh, what do you call it? Stripey bacon, stringy bacon, streaky, streaky, streaky. which is streaky. what? So fatty, fatty. Oh, I got you. It. Yeah, yeah. You, not crispy. I take it. Yo, I would go for grilled if I could, rather than yeah. fried. Yeah, um, but air, yeah. air fried's the ticket. Um, <clears throat> all right, so you you go through high school. It's uh, sounds like it's not the the greatest experience. A little bit of bullying and not a lot of friends. But then you kind of enter the club scene. Was part of that uh, because of the the difficulty in high school and in wanting to be in that more kind of popular. Um, in crowd environment or, or was that totally on, on, uh, related? I think a lot of the time when people don't understand how something works, especially socially, um, there's some advantages and some disadvantages. So one of the disadvantages is that you don't seem to feel like you have a group of friends. One of the advantages is that by being on the outside of something, you can actually see how it operates. You can watch the dynamics more effectively. And I'd been watching social dynamics for a long time. Uh, and then I went to uni and I, I didn't really know about running club nights or how it worked. But all that you're doing when you're filling a club night is <clears throat> creating a um, a vacuum or a, a, an attractor socially that appeals to a particular group of people and then encouraging that group of people to go to them. So I ended up being really, really effective at doing this. So very quickly, me and the first guy that I sat next to in my first ever seminar, who is still my business partner 16 years later, um, we both started doing the same thing, flyering, you know, hi, mate, where are you going tonight? Why don't you come to our nightclub? Like that sort of stuff. And within the space of a year, went from being sort of the lowest guys on the rung of the ladder to owning our own franchise. And that was really great. And that made me feel uh, for the first time ever like I'd really, um, like I had a place, like people needed me, like people wanted me. Uh, and again, as with a lot of things, something that is adaptive and beneficial can often very quickly sort of become, um, uh, it, it can twist into something that you really, really don't want, that, that it shouldn't be. Uh, and that was what I've found with myself. And a lot of people maybe as well, young guys specifically uh, who <clears throat> haven't had a role model or haven't had somebody to look up to or a, a linear trajectory. What happens is they finally find a little bit of success in life, maybe when they're, uh, you know, business or in a sport or perhaps with a relationship or something like that, that makes them feel whole. And they start to attach their entire sense of self-worth to that pursuit as opposed to their inputs toward it. So very quickly, my sense of self-worth was attached to whether the business was successful or not, whether the club nights that we were running were busy or not. So it wasn't about whether or not I'd done well. It was about whether or not the business was successful. But overall, it made me, for the first time ever, it made me feel sort of wanted and needed and competent and like people cared about me and needed me. Uh, and whether they needed me because they actually wanted to need me or they needed me because they just needed to get into the nightclub, I, I, I wasn't asking that question. I just wanted to be wanted. Yeah, that makes sense. There's a lot of that, uh, you know, with military folks as well. And, and I think a lot of industries, but uh, I know for, for me personally in the community, you know, within the SEAL teams coming from that, uh, that environment is that 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 attachment to that brand and that uh, that past or background is is pretty all inclusive that way, and it's very difficult, I think, for a lot of guys once they leave uh, spe any special operations community to kind of detach from that. You know, that tends to serve as their identity, uh, you know, kind of for the rest of their life in in a way. But um, is there a a secret uh, or or kind of a, a key to success in terms of promotion, whether it's nightclubs or, or anything? Do you find a, a parallel? promotion, uh, like promotion is promotion or, or is there something specific to it? 
a few little quirks here and there, but principles that people can take that run their own businesses that are trying to do anything that needs to garner attention, because that's what you're doing with a, a club night. It's people getting drunk in a room to music, right? Dress it up however you want. Put a DJ on, put nice dances on, have a, a guy in an inflatable suit outside. Like it's, it's people getting drunk in a room to music. So the product doesn't actually change all that much, which is interesting from a marketing perspective, because what you're doing is you're always playing around with the, uh, like the intangibles, right? The ancillary stuff, stuff around the outside. A really great tactic, and I use this on the podcast, and everybody should start to use this. Human beings, they are um, they're anticipatory beings, right? What they're looking for is actually the event that's coming up, and they enjoy the anticipation of the event sometimes more than the event itself, which is really interesting. So what you can do is you can use this to your advantage, and you can draw out a very protracted buildup uh, sequence towards the launch of anything. And I found this with the show, but we would do, uh, let's say we were going to launch a new club night in September. We would begin to do a teaser campaign that something new was coming in June. And then there would be a teaser about the announcement. Then there would be an announcement, which would actually say what it was going to be and when it was going to be that would begin to count down. And it would be this very, very sort of long protracted thing. And it would just get people's attention. People need something to look forward to. People want shit to look forward to. That's why they plan holidays. That's why they go to festival. That's why they book shows and stuff like that. And we realized that this is a really good hack. Uh, and similarly for the show, if I've got a big guest, I had Jordan Peterson on earlier this year, uh, which is a really great episode, actually. And if any of the the guys that are listening, we can put the link in the show notes or something. They can go and check that out. because That's a really good episode if they want to sort of get an intro to Modern Wisdom and what I do. Um, that's, a, that's a fantastic episode to listen to. And I, I spent two months building up this episode with Jordan. And uh, by the time that it actually came, people were really excited because it was a, they'd look forward to it. Yeah. They were drawn on a journey. And if you're launching a business, if you've got any sort of project that you want people to care about, you know, take a bit of time, look at the timeline, think about, okay, can I get six weeks out of this? Can I say that there's something cool coming? And then when it's when it's here, that, and then maybe there's some more things I can release over, over time, like a logo or a menu if it's a restaurant or some special guests if it's an event or whatever, like really draw it out. And that, that to me seems to be a, a, a great hack that pretty much anybody can use to get more attention to something that they want to launch. Yeah, no, it makes perfect sense. I mean, I think the the tricky part is is sticking with it. You know, I know, you know, for me in, in this show or, or any of the other, you know, companies that that I deal with, uh, you know, it, it's planning it all out and, and being, uh, I think, disciplined enough to, to follow through with it and continue to do so. But Mike, can no. I ask you? I need to ask you, man. Like, the, yeah. you know, we're talking. We're talking the day after this uh, Texas school shooting thing, and mm-hmm. obviously, having been in the special forces, how do you? I, I, I've never been in America when when something like this has happened before, right? Yeah. Um, uh, it was very very strange to read that news story and realize that it was within probably what a hundred miles of Austin, one hundred and twenty miles, one hundred and fifty yeah. miles. <clears throat> very very strange. Given the fact that you are probably much more desensitized to any of this sort of um, uh, to any any war crimes or violence than most people, how does it feel to you? You know, to read a story like that, it looks like nineteen children dead, one teacher, a couple of policemen injured. How does it feel to you when you read a story like that? Well, you know, the uh, I would say that the being desensitized to to carnage. Um, while that's a factor, uh, it does not <clears throat> negate my empathy as a father 
I, I have kids, uh, two of them. They're older than that age range, but uh, they were that age range once. Uh, the thought of being a parent and experiencing something like that is uh, is impossible to wrap my mind around. Um, <clears throat> what I what I also think is that uh, kind of a number of things is that oftentimes um, emotions drive. Uh, reactions, you know, and, and typically when the, the higher the emotion, the less logic people use. Uh, I'm a huge data guy, right? Um, and it's easy for whether it's you can talk about abortion, you can talk about drug overdose deaths, you can talk about uh, school shootings, you can talk about really anything. To me, the important thing is is to remove emotion. I talk about it, you know, that at length in my book is is removing emotion, remove religion, remo- remove politics. When you go into into any type of conversation, and I don't think this is any different, I think that you can have empathy and and uh, and and be devastated about something, but still look at it logically. In that, um, I think it's it's evil. Uh, I think it's uh, a goddamn Greek tragedy that that something like that happened. That somebody is is capable of doing something like that. Um, but I also fear that uh, that people respond when things like that happen, uh, very emotionally, you know, and it's not to take away from 19 kids, uh, losing their lives in a, in a school setting. And, and especially I think where, where the, the nature with which they lost their life is, is what drives people to, to react differently than they would say if those were drug overdoses, right? Cause more than 19 kids die every day, you know, of drug overdoses way more than that. And for, and for that matter, even take school shootings, a, a statistic that I have in my book, uh, when talking about guns, uh, backyard pool drownings, more kids of that age range die drowning accidentally in backyard pools. Right. But nobody is is screaming for concrete trucks to come in and fill everybody's backyard pool. And you, nobody needs a fucking swimming pool. Right. You hear that all the time. Nobody needs an AR-15. Nobody needs a this or a that. Uh, you know, this country isn't about what people need. Uh, you know, to me, what this country needs is, is a government that is set up to uh to protect everybody's freedom uh, to the best of their ability, you know, and, and with great freedom comes great responsibility. And so um, no, no question about it. It's a, it's an absolute tragedy for shit like that to happen. And I wish that it didn't. Um, a lot of times people ask, well, you know, how do you think that you fix that? And I think, you know, there, there's not a one, one solution answer to it. It's a, it's an onion approach and that there's a number of layers um, you know, but uh, so uh, to, I mean, we could spend hours talking about the, the handful of different solutions that I think collectively would, uh, contribute to, uh, making it, uh, from a percentage standpoint, a lot less likely for the, these things to be able to happen. Um, you know, but that's a several hour conversation in and of itself to your question. I, I think it's sickening, you know, it, 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 uh, is tough to hear, uh, and it's hard not to have a, a a wildly emotional response to something like that because you can empathize with those parents. You can put yourself in, in a classroom and, you know, as a fly on the wall and think how fucking terrified those those other kids must have been. And even the ones that lost their lives, the last moments of their life, how terrifying that must have been and how shitty of an experience, uh, you know, that, that unquestionably that uh, that that is to go through. Um, and, and so I, I wish that stuff like that didn't happen. I wish that, that people didn't have that type of evil in their heart. Um, uh, but I also, uh, I don't like to see, uh, you know, people have knee jerk emotional responses to stuff like that and, 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 you know, springboard off of the emotions, 
in terms of the response from <clears throat> from situations like that and, and now make these super drastic changes that are that are, in my opinion, over corrections. Um, well, you, know, I mean, I you, you see this with any situation now, right? Everything is a, a political football yeah. to be kicked around. Well, um, yeah, I mean, most things are. I will say the one thing that's that's strangely not, there's two things, opioid overdoses and child sex trafficking. I don't see either either side blaming the other or using that as as a political pawn to try to score points against the other side. Both of those are are far more detrimental to our society than than school shootings and and gun deaths are by by over 10x. Uh and yet neither side really says much about about either of them. Why do you think that is? I think uh I think there's two two main reasons. Well, one, it, it essentially boils down to one reason. I think is that there's too big of an involvement uh from people in in those circles, both both that are addicted to opioids or or like them and use them. And I think that that uh you know, child sex trafficking and and that type of mentality seems like it's it's fucking pervasive in the higher ups of of elitism and govern uh you know, higher government officials. You know, there's statistics that that talk about um, you know, the the number of people from the House of Representatives on up that have been involved in scandalous situations like that, that our tax dollars have actually paid to uh, basically cover it up or, or settle out of court. Uh, and it's it's astronomical and those things are never talked about. So, you know, my opinion is that it, it's it's too close to home. And so neither one of them, neither side wants to uh, to really do anything about it because they're they're too too involved in it. There's a you know now you're interviewing worry. me. I, I know, I know. Yeah, well, dude, I'm interested in I'm interested yeah. in what you've got to say. Yeah. I think this is very timely, and yeah. you know, as someone that you're right, you're right as an affinity with Carnage. Um, well, I, I don't know that I have an affinity with it. Um, I, you know, I certainly have some experience with it, but uh, but uh, you know, I'm I'm not so desensitized to it that it doesn't affect me. You know, I mean, if I see a a nasty accident, you know, my heart rate goes up, and you know, I don't have the the EMT, you know, or, or emergency room doctor response to people getting, getting their heads, you know, cut off in a traffic accident like that, that still rattles me. Maybe not as much as somebody who's never seen any of that, but I'm not so desensitized to where it doesn't affect me, you know. Douglas Murray, guy that wrote War on the West and uh, Madness of Crowds, I had him on my show uh, not long ago, and he told me this story about Christopher Hitchens. We were talking about the fact that um, in life, a lot of the time, you have to make difficult decisions. You need to make a a choice between two different things and you know when we're discussing anything to do with gun control or response to an event or a anything that has that has particular decisions in tell me this story christopher hitchens one of the new atheists and said it was after a, a talk that they both given or they've been on a panel or something you can imagine it's probably in some dark and dingy london gentleman's club and hitch will be there with a corduroy shirt on and the sleeves are rolled up and it's probably on a chesterfield leather couch and he's sort of lying back with a scotch and he's like probably smoking probably got two cigarettes chain smoking and douglas is talking about the fact that he needs to make decisions and, and every time that he makes a difficult decision there's a trade-off that needs to be paid right for one for this decision i have to let go of this and for this decision i have to let go of the other apparently hitch turned and he sipped his drink and he looked at douglas and he said douglas in life, we must choose our regrets. Mm. I was like, "Fucking hell!" Choose our regrets. What do you mean? What does he mean that we have to choose our regrets? I really thought about this for ages, and I really, really, th whenever there's a difficult decision or whenever there's a contentious topic, I always think about choose our regrets. Like, okay, so what he means is that regrets are 
uh, an inevitable part of life, right? That they're baked into the fabric of reality. It's not regrets aren't some sort of bug. They're a feature, right, of the way that we exist. <clears throat> and because we have opportunity cost, by doing a thing, we don't do another thing. That means that even if we made the absolute optimal decision, we can still always wonder about the one that we didn't make. And I'd always look back on decisions that I'd made in the past. And if I had regrets, I would always say, well, that's because I didn't quite optimize the decision appropriately. If I'd only made a slightly better decision, I could have got rid of the regret entirely. I was like, oh, hang on a second. It, it seems like that's not the case. It seems like even having made the perfect yeah. decision, regret would still be a part of this. And I'm like, okay, well, that, that's interesting. But what does it mean that we have to choose our regrets? What about, what about the choosing bit? Okay, well, a lot of the time when you're trying to make a decision, what you're trying to do is sort of optimize for what you want to happen. But given the fact that regrets are inevitable and that they're a baked-in part of everyday life, maybe a better way to look at difficult decisions is to think about which regret you could live with and which regret you couldn't live with. Because given the fact that you have to choose your regrets, you then have to think, okay, well, which of these do I want to choose? I have to choose a regret. I can't not have a regret, right? I'm going to think about whether I should have gone to the theme park or gone to the gym. And then in retrospect, gym. yeah, yeah, always the gym. <laughs> it's always the gym, especially up against the theme park. But which regret do I want to live with? You know, mm -hmm. and uh, yeah. whenever a big decision like this comes out, I always think like, you know, in life, you have to choose your regrets, which is the regret that you want to live with. Yeah, I agree. I mean, you know, I think another way to look at that, I mean, I think, you know, most or a lot of people may see uh, see that as a as a pessimist viewpoint of saying the lesser of two evils or choose your regrets. But that is the reality of it is that I think most times or oftentimes in life, decisions aren't easy. They're not black and white. There's not a clear cut. Yeah, this is the best decision, you know, gym versus theme park. That's pretty, that's a pretty easy black and white one. Right. But, uh, but most of them aren't that, that boiled down and that simple. And, and, and there is a, a bite out of a shit sandwich that you're going to have to take on one of them. And, and which one can you, can you take a bigger bite of and, and swallow it easier? But uh, I am curious, you know, in, in that same vein, same question to you, what, what are your thoughts having come from the UK where, uh, you know, there's such a disparity, uh, second amendment and gun ownership wise? Well, the gun conversation in the UK simply isn't something that we have, right? <clears throat> um, and I understand, especially having spent a good bit of time here and a lot of time speaking to people, mostly on the show, more than actually being here. I find that conversations about the First and Second Amendment uh, generally, like just amongst friends, tend to not happen unless it's like a real focused topic. Whereas on, on the internet, on my show, I, I'll tend to have conversations about that a lot more. Firstly, because we don't have guns, no one's talking about guns, right? I mean, you can't take away that which you don't have. And uh, the tyranny of the government and all of that sort of rhetoric, the UK generally is um, a little bit less, I want to use something else, but the closest word I can think of is conspiratorial. Um, like the, the, there are fewer um, concerns about nefarious government overreach and, and and things like that now you could say that's you know um fortunate naivety that you're just sort of living with blinkers on and i a lot of my american friends would probably accuse accuse me of that however um it's simply not a discussion when it comes to free speech and stuff like that i mean you'll know that there's an online hate crime bill 
which was tried to be passed in the UK, which made it a criminal offense to say nasty things on the internet. Uh, guy was jailed. Count Dankula was jailed briefly for teaching his dog to do a Nazi salute. Uh, that was a particularly egregious example. Uh, for anybody that's interested in history, by the way, Count Dankula has an amazing YouTube channel where he just takes hardcore guys from history. It's called Absolute Mad Lads. And he'll do a one-hour breakdown of some of the most ruthless leaders from history. And he's a fantastic historian, but he, he's a comedian. So he taught his yeah. book to do a... And uh, there was people who've been jailed for tweeting rap lyrics, and all sorts of other bits and pieces. But those are, for the most part, really, really like malignant. And the amount of outcry that people push back against, you get social enforcement of this, and, and that sort of stuff doesn't really fly because the internet. So yeah. the thing which is perhaps facilitating people to do this stuff is also the enforcement mechanism which stops people from uh, stops the government from overreaching too much because people go, hang on a second, this is absolutely insane. And you will get the, the British were not uh, as quick to riot as American or at least some parts of America, but we're good at protests. Like we'll happily get a picket fence up and, and, and do stuff. Um, so it's for the most part, I don't, I don't think I have a sufficiently sophisticated stance. I also don't really have a dog in the fight yet. Uh, I just got my O1 visa, so I'm going to be here. I can come and go as much as I want uh, for the next three years, which is, which is great. So I guess I probably do need to actually really think quite closely about my about my stance on it. I mean, I'm not going to be voting, so again, uh, I don't really have an actual dog in the fight. But it's strange coming from a country that doesn't have guns mm -hmm. to one where the conversation gets thrust into the headlines at least every couple of years with a you know a, an event like the one that we saw yesterday. And um, I think it felt it felt a lot more real to me yesterday, having been here and realizing that oh, I kind of call this place home at least now. No. What does that mean? What does it mean to me that that nineteen kids lost their lives and and that I don't know about guns? You know, I mean, I've shot I've shot guns. I trained in firearm safety, but I've not been in a war zone. I've never been in a, a situation where where that's happened. Yeah. I, you know, again, I, I think really with, I mean, pick a political topic. I think, you know, data serves as a good um, simmering down on all sides, you know, is that, that that really is what tells you the severity of whatever the issue is that you're talking about and, and pick anything, you know, whether it's, again, abortion, drugs, prostitution, child sex trafficking, uh, you know, the border, um, you name it, opioid deaths. I mean, they're all... Uh, for that matter, you know, the, the, the killing of unarmed black individuals in this country, you know, similarly, like if you look at data and, and I think sometimes people say, you know, well, if you look at the data, it minimalizes those. No, you know, all, all, all statistics are, are a representation of the severity of a problem, you know, and to me where I, where I take a, a huge issue with our, our nation's media is, is in that cherry picking of things that they're outraged about or not. You know, and again, like, are it, it, is the number of nineteen, um, you know, a a significant enough number, um, you know, to to compare to some of these other things that are that are again taking the lives of the same age range of kids in much much higher numbers. Does that take away from from the deaths of those 19, 19 children? No, it doesn't. You know, again, I, I'm a father. If if that had been one of my kids, I, I wouldn't be any less devastated. I also wouldn't feel any different about firearms than I do right now. Uh, and it's not even that I'm, you know, this huge gun nut that has this crazy fucking arsenal. I, I don't, and I'm not, 
I, I have some and I'm proficient because of my background and, and I do I have a concealed carry permit and I carry on, on a regular basis. In that same vein of data, I think it's imperative to look at death rates. You know, whether you take the UK, you take Australia, you take, you know, pick a country is that the overall murder rate per capita, that there's not a huge difference country to country, you know? And, and so to me, it, it's, it's scapegoating one tool over the, the potential for tens of thousands of other tools to accomplish that same goal is that if your, if your goal is to, is to kill children, there are a, a number of ways that that sick fuck could have done that. You know, the, the gun is, is but one way uh, taken in France here a few years ago where there was, you know, a few different terrorist uh, activities that, uh, that involved trucks, you know, where they, they drove through populated centers and, and killed dozens of people with a, with a rental truck. Uh, you know, so I, to me, what frustrates me the most about it is two things is one is that emotional based response that now that they, that people cling on to. And this happens on both sides, whether it's a, you know, nasty abortion videos that, that get published and, and the right uses them to try to outlaw X, Y, and Z, or, you know, the left with this or, or, you know, pick a, pick a topic, but is that they, they cling on to that and they use that to further their political agenda. Um, but I think even further than, than that <clears throat> is that. They're, they're letting emotions drive decisions, you know, and, and if you've ever been in an argument with a spouse or a significant other, uh, it's easy to understand where, you know, high levels of emotion don't usually um, translate to the, the best decision making process, you know. And, and so I, I hate to see that happen. Um, and it frustrates me as a uh, as somebody who's you know put my life on the line for the freedoms that this country enjoys. Um, you know, I would like to see those, those freedoms maintained, but, um, what, one thing that I am curious, I guess, in kind of in the same vein of, of the second amendment and, and, you know, shootings kind of dovetailing into the political scene here versus where you're from, uh, what, what is your take on our political process versus where you come from and, and, uh, and the contrast? So when the U S coughs, we usually catch a cold in the UK, uh, which, unfortunately means that we're kind of uh tangentially linked to whatever it is that goes on which also means that we have to be kind of a little bit invested so you know we had black lives matter protests occurred in 2020 after the killing of a person that wasn't even on the island or the continent where we live right like a, a person died and and then and then that that happened so <clears throat> first off our politics at least culturally has started to look more like your politics for better or worse yeah. um I think that I would be tempted to say that America as a country is too big. Mm -hmm. Just, And I think that that is a problem that you guys are going to continue to come up against. I think that you've basically taken an entire continent with 50 different countries in it that all happen to speak the same language and get them to share the same currency. And you're trying – there is a, a, a line at the moment where it's trying to be governed underneath one – sort of global, uh, one local trade block, basically, kind of like the EU. Uh, and it happens to be that everybody can say that we are part of the same country and we're patriotic and blah, blah, blah. But when you have the 330 million people spread across a huge landmass, including some other bits that are kind of separated out, it's very difficult to coordinate those people, especially culturally, right? Mm -hmm. And the fact that you happen to identify as being from the same country now 
in the age of atomization of the individual and the internet where you can find your own niche group to make friends with and you don't actually have to be bonded to your local community, which means that communities don't have to be bonded to communities, states to states and countries overall. I think it's becoming increasingly difficult to glue together a country of this size. Now, I would love to see America succeed at doing this, but all of the discussions about secession and, and, and the splitting up of the states and stuff like that, I think that that is a function of the fact that it's really, really difficult to try and govern a country that's as big as this, with as many yeah, people I, as this. I, I agree 100% with you, uh, with, with one, uh, one exception, which is I, I think that we've grown into that, uh, and not even size-wise. I mean, landmass-wise, it's been the same. Yes, our population has fucking doubled in the last 50 years. But, um, but I think that the key is, uh, just like you saw with this uh, recent uh, Supreme Court decision is is kicking things back to the states as much as possible is, is the secret to that happy medium is that, you know, the more things are federalized on every fucking level, the harder it is to to maintain and control and have a cookie cutter one size fits all policy approach to all these different 50 places, because I, I agree it, it is very much like the EU. You know, there there are states that are bigger than some countries in Europe. Uh, there's a number of them, you know, and, and so. Uh, to me, that that is the answer. I, th I think we we should and and can continue to be the United States of America, but there needs to be a a concerted effort on a federal level to delegate as much as possible back to the individual states and and having them decide you know how they run things. The the more you take the Department of Education as probably a as clear cut of an example as I can provide. You know, there's a correlation between the early '80s when the Department of Education was in full swing. Um, you know, where now there's all these federally mandated uh, policies as it relates to uh, elementary through, uh, to, you know, K through 12, basically. Um, and there's a, a direct parallel of, of the more that that ramped up and the more that the federal government was involved uh, in that primary education uh, time frame that, that we as a nation have, have spiraled down a fucking drain. Uh, as it relates to our, our ranking internationally with with how we compete with all these other countries. And it's just getting worse and worse and worse. Um, you know, so the way that I've seen it watching from the outside and now now having a little bit of a foot in the inside for the last sort of three months since I've been here, um, I do wonder whether America has sort of lost its cultural hold on. There was a period for a big chunk of the 1900s, which was when we had the highest population growth on on the planet, and also the highest sort of cultural improvement as well. Um, you were able to broadcast what was going on, and that really feels like a. What you've ended up with was a, a formative uh, set of years where America was the leader in um, culturally, economically, and. Having seen what's happened over the last few years, like who's looking at America and thinking, "Oh wow, like they've really got it all held together." And yeah. a, a theory that I've had in my mind for a long time, I've had a lot of um, Russian disinformation and Chinese uh, uh, long-termist strategists on the show talking about what it is that they're planning on doing. So I see there's sort of two ways that the current cultural um, soup that the America that America is in uh, could have been caused through. Uh, one of them is that it is the seeds have been sown from um, foreign agents who have tried to encourage America to become self-hating. So this is the topic of Douglas's new book, The War on the West. The most interesting type of anti-Westernism is the anti-Westernism that comes from the West itself, right? The call is coming from inside of the house. And has this been sown 
and amplified by uh, foreign agents, right? That's that's one way that it could be. The biggest uh, Black Lives, pro-Black Lives page on Facebook before Black Lives Matter was started at the Internet Research Agency in Russia, and it was operated by them. And they were running events, real-life events in America with real people, real Americans going to it, being run by Russia. You go, oh, oh my God. Um, that's the first one. The second option is that it isn't due to them and that this is just America as a culture turning around and kicking the ball into their own goal over and over again. And if you're China or Russia or North Korea or anybody else that wants to see the United States fail, you're looking at each other going, was that, was, <laughs> was that us? Yeah. No, you're kidding. They're doing that to themselves. Yeah. Both of those solutions are terrifying. It's like the solution to the Fermi paradox. Where are all of the aliens? It's either they're everywhere or they're nowhere. And both of yeah. those are pretty scary. Yeah. No, yeah, I think it's both. I, I think that to, to me, it's kind of like one of those uh, steel ball and the string things that goes back and forth almost in that, you know, all it takes is a little bit of a nudge from from these outside actors to get us to to kind of eat our own and turn on each other. And, and they just... You know, are, are kind of on the outside poking the bear here and there and, and, and ensuring that. How is it that America is so fragile or um, I, I think we're a victim. Stable. Yeah, I think it's, it's that we are a victim of our own success, that we've been too, too powerful and successful for too long to where that, that adage of, you know, hard times create strong men, strong men create good times, good times create weak men that, we are are uh, experiencing the the detriment of that. You know, we are in the good times create weak men uh, phase of that vicious cycle. And and so, to me, when when you live in a population where people can uh, try to sue each other over not using the correct or preferred pronouns, you know, or or enacting legislation based on shit like that, or or rioting over some of the things that that people riot over and, and burning shit to the ground and and uh, you know, I would say the the overall general mean collective average of things that people are outraged about are total bullshit. You know, and, and it's a it's a result of us having the the flexibility and, and frankly, the um, the luxury of being pissed off about things that don't really matter. Human beings are are created to endure uh, and to suffer to a certain degree and to and to overcome. And, and when when our own success removes so much of that inherent environmental uh, struggle and, and need to overcome certain challenges goes away. We as a society create them because they, they have to exist, you know, or good without the context of bad isn't fucking good anymore. If you, if you love ice cream, you can eat too much of it. If that's all you eat, it starts to suck. It'll make you sick and now you'll hate it. Um, you know, and, and I think that that's, that's kind of the throes of, of the of the double-edged sword that we've found ourselves in and, and that we've been too good for too long and now we're an entitled spoiled brat um you know that, that doesn't know how to fucking deal with uh with our own fucking feelings and emotions in a lot of ways i'd be tempted to agree um so there's a, a two uh interesting elements here uh, i think it's called the tocqueville paradox uh when you combine that with concept creep so as living standards in a particular society rise a lot of the time people's expectations of those standards rise with them but very quickly the expectations can start to outstrip the growth in the standards themselves 
Yeah. So what you end up with is a society that even though living standards are objectively getting better, people aren't, uh, the expectations of that continues to increase. And then when you marry that with concept creep, which is that a lot of the time what you have to see with things like um, uh, racism or sexism or any type of social concern, a lot of the time people aren't looking to detect that they're like they're trying to find a waterline that they want the level of this uh, event to occur at or the frequency in terms of the data and what they're going to do is continue to expand the definition of that to maintain that water level so it's not about measuring with this it's about changing the definition in order to keep that level the same so you can imagine yeah. that you, if you ever increase the expansion of what it constitutes for someone to use hate speech that you yeah. can keep hate speech at the same level but it needs to be an ever expanding definition when you combine those two things together the concept creep with the the tocqueville paradox what you end up with is a situation where people are ever more sensitive to ever less problematic issues in the world and, yeah. uh, you know, on top of that as well, you just think, well, it's the world is super convenient. I think that the fact you can Uber eat a Michelin star meal to your house while you Amazon Prime, whatever, and air conditioned kid send your kids to school in the car, all that stuff is fantastic. But I do think that there's there's definitely something which has been sort of lost. And that would be something like sort of spiritual satisfaction, right? A sense of connection to the grand, um, less of a, a rational cerebral solution to the world, um, community locally, perhaps this would have probably been very heavily served by religious uh, uh, services and, and, and going to faith, faith-based traditions and stuff like that in the past. And now people are looking for a way to fill that slightly less objective hole with problems that can be described using the more sort of prescriptive real world rational uh, stats that we're looking at. No, I, I agree a hundred percent. I'm going to make an analogy in that same, uh, same vein. You do MMA and, and grappling and stuff with some of the guys in Austin, right? Yes. The types of workouts that you do with those guys, similarly to some of the experiences I've had with, you know, former teammates that I went through seal training with and such, <clears throat> there is a certain bond that you create with people that you go through really, really difficult experiences with. Correct. Yes. One that, that comparatively to people that you maybe just have a professional relationship, it's vastly different. It's, it's much stronger. It's much more authentic. There, there's a, a lot more uh, emotional investment in it. There, there's just a, a much stronger, tighter um, kind of soul agreement with this person than, than you have with, with really anybody else, even your own family members, blood in, in a lot of cases. To me, it's kind of that same thing is that, that there's such a lack of that now, right, where where very few people have have that type of bond with people because their lives are so fucking easy in, in every other way that it almost dehumanizes everybody else. We love Ghostbed. They have super comfortable mattresses that last forever, and they're made in the USA. Every mattress has a 20-year warranty. Some even have 25, and you can try it out for 101 nights. If you don't like it, you can send it back. No hard feelings. One of our favorite parts about Ghostbed is that each mattress has cooling technology in it. So if you get hot at night like, say, I do here in Texas, these things are a lifesaver. Ghostbed also offers bundles so you can get everything you need. You don't even have to really think about it. Just choose from their four mattresses and then pick your bundle. So whether you just need a mattress and frame or you want it all, like their cooling pillows and sheets, 
you can get the best bang for your buck. Right now, GhostBed is offering 40% off GhostBed bundles where you get a mattress and adjustable base, or 30% off everything if you use the code MICDROP at ghostbed.com forward slash MICDROP. You can buy a mattress for like 35 bucks a month. They have zero down, 0% financing plan for up to 60 months. Go check it out at ghostbed.com forward slash mic drop. So why was it the case? I have asked myself this a ton of times. Why was it the case that when COVID started and everybody on the planet was suffering the same unknown future, ambient anxiety, there's this invisible killer out there. We don't know if it's a 10 or a 20% mortality rate, you know, especially so that, that March, April, June period of 2020. Mm-hmm. I thought that perhaps that would be a species bonding uh, event, right? Well, who was yeah. that famous president that said, uh, can you imagine how quickly our differences would be forgotten if we were attacked by an alien foe? I think it was, uh, I want to say it was, was it Ronald Reagan? Uh, maybe it was Kennedy. I know that there was, there was a question asked to a, a Russian president. I, it was, I, I, it escapes my mind, but I know what you're talking about. And that, and that he asked, you know, Hey, if, if, uh, you know, if aliens invaded us, would you have our back? And they're like, well, fuck yeah, we would or whatever. And that was the start to a, to a, a negotiation. But, uh, to, to your question, I think it's that, for that first, you know, the, the first 15 days that turned into two years, that 15 days, I think that was the case. Very quickly, pe- most people realized, even if it was subconsciously, that it wasn't nearly as big of a deal as it was being made out to be or that they thought it might be. And then that's when it turned into people, you know, honestly killing each other over not wearing a fucking mask or not, you know, and uh, and, and you, you, you saw this weird shift of, of uh, you know, all these different very, very strange, uh, almost mental illness-like ideologies that people had uh, on both sides of that fence to where, uh, you know, again, people are, are dehumanizing each other over, over really, really stupid little things because, again, there's just, there's nothing else to, uh, to really consume them that, uh, that's of worthy uh, mention. But I, I really hope, I'm big into existential risk, right? The different ways that humanity could go extinct and how we can avoid them. And uh, an engineered pandemic or a natural pandemic are two of the really big ones uh, in terms of the likelihood over the next 100 years by the the people that know what they're talking about. And I'd really, really hoped that in the same way that we ended up getting a vaccine to, to try and defeat the virus, that the actual virus itself in terms of what it did to humanity would kind of be like an inoculation against people not understanding that this is a really, really serious problem. You know, potential leaks from BSL-4 labs, like the highest security lab that you can get. Smallpox has got out of there. Anthrax has got out of there. Uh, Potentially COVID-19 has has got out of there. These are the highest security that you can get. And okay, that's a big problem. Mm-hmm. Another big problem is global coordination. What does it mean for us to be able to get? We can't get PPE, right? You can't get enough of the protective equipment that the doctors need to be able to do to do this. What does it mean that you can't shut down flights, that governments can't coordinate? Like, this is a, a big deal. Say what you want about Bill Gates. He was talking about this 10 years ago. He was saying, uh, and if you dig into the actual literature around the, the books, accessible books by people like Nick Bostrom and, and, and Toby Ord, New York Times bestsellers saying like this is a big problem. People should pay attention to this. Yeah. So I hoped that this would be like a look. 
Warning sign. Need to be careful. You have an interdependent entire species now. This isn't isolated anymore. People aren't air-gapped from each other because they can't build longboats that can do more than 100 miles across the ocean, right? Like, this isn't safe. So yeah. what what do we need to do? What are the protections that need to be put in? Blah, blah, blah. Nah, not happened. It's just not a solution. That's not what's, that's not what's come out of this. And it didn't bond us. And maybe you're right. Maybe... Uh, in the same way that you could give somebody like a dose of a vaccine that was too low, that it didn't actually um, instigate an immune response, maybe because COVID ended up being whatever it is, like 0.5% mortality or, or something like that, that it simply wasn't enough of a, a punch in the face in yeah. terms of suffering uh, that it didn't cause. But you go, okay, so I mean, at what point do we need to lose 30% of the of the globe's population in order to do this? Yeah, I th- well, I think so. Take 9-11 is that, you know... Um Similarly, is that if you look at, at 9, 12, 2001, look at the, the unity that existed in this country, and it did for years. But to me, I think that that serves as a, as a really good example in, in that the human condition or, or just people, generally speaking, need almost a constant or recurring threat, existential threat, you know, wh- whether it's self-imposed or, you know, or it's exterior or uh, you know, even if it's fucking perceived for that matter, is that there there has to be a a real feeling of threat that that there's a, a united front for people to to unite and do that. Otherwise, they will they will find reasons to to fight a, amongst each other. Um, there was a a really great article that I read the other day about population collapse, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I've thought about existential risk for ages. And one of the things that I've never thought of is such a smart way to put it. So you mentioned the fact that um, with an existential risk, with most of them, right, it's smog-filled skies, it's the the upcoming asteroid, it's the supervolcano that's just about to erupt, it's the the AI that's on the cusp of self-reliance uh, or Terminator whatever. Terminator 2. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's Arnold Schwarzenegger naked Skynet. in the middle of a car park punching <laughs> someone in the face. And um, those are very easy to rally against because they're so uh, obvious, right? You know, it's a thing that you see. Whereas population collapse is, there's nothing to fight against. It's just this sort of slow and then increasingly less slow curve that you fall off the end of. And um, thinking about that, you, you, you're right. Humanity works best. Groups cohese together when they're working against something. And the thing, it needs to be something that they can see and feel and hear and fear. Yeah. And communicate. To, you know, to, to each other about to, to me, that also begs the question from kind of a, almost an evolutionary or, or, you know, really 30,000 foot view standpoint is what role does mother nature play in making its own corrections, uh, as it relates to oh, the human correct. species, you know, is that if you look at the history of the planet that, you know, we're, we're not the only, uh, actor in town, you know, um, and we're also not smarter than mother nature. Yeah. Like, there's been some ridiculously amazing advancements in, in science and, and medical technology. But the fact is, is that mother nature is, is still the queen bitch, you know, and, and if she decides there's too many of you fuckers on the planet and I'm going to cut, cut that number in half, she'll find a way to do it, you know? Um, and, and, you know, so to me, like people don't, don't ever want to talk about population control. And I brought this up on a, on a recent episode I had, but, and I'm not, um, advocating for that. I, you know, I have kids, I've, I've repopulated the planet, uh, you know, to a certain extent. Yeah. You know, and so it's, it's, I'm never going to take the approach 
nor am I naive enough to think I have any business telling anybody that they should or couldn't uh, have kids or what have you. However, the fact is the planet is only so big. There are only so many resources. And, and no matter how efficient and streamlined any of these life processes are, the fact is, is that there, there comes a critical mass threshold point at which there just isn't enough for everybody. And, and I feel like we're, we're kind of at that point, you know, where as we continue to grow, it gets to where things become a problem. Uh, I recently flew here uh, last week, which I, I fly as, as little as possible because I hate it. But um, I flew out of Dallas and then I flew into a really fucking small airport. And one of the biggest things that stuck out to me was the difference in temperament and, and personality of the TSA agents at those two airports. It was night and fucking day. How so? And in, in how they treated people, uh, their temperament, their attitude, their, their overall positivity or lack thereof. Da Dallas was less so. Yeah. The, the, the bigger and more, more, um, congested and populated and, and chaotic and dynamic and stressful environments are, you see that reflection in all the people that are in those environments. Take, toilet paper during the COVID shutdowns, right? People are killing each other over fucking Charmin. Um, stupid shit, you know, and, and, and anytime you go to a really small town, what, what's kind of the first thing you notice and people talk about it's the, it's toilet the paper. slow, oh. slow pace. Yeah. <laughs> toilet paper. It's the, it's the pace of life. Everything slows way the fuck down. Uh, I think human beings are more meant to be in that, that environment. And, and like you said, you know, the, the country is too big. The fucking planet's too big. The population is too big. You know, it, we're, we're at a point where like you, you can't find places to, to get away almost anymore, you know, and, and that has a, a detrimental mental impact on human beings uh, in a way that I don't think this planet has ever come across. If you look at the inception of, of the human race all the way up until now, like we're living in uncharted territory in so many ways, you know, not just the obvious technological advances, but in population. You know, there's more people alive now than there ever has been and by a lot, you know, and, and, and that has impacts on people to where you see this rat race. There was a study not long. Uh, it, the study was, was kind of brought back to life. It's, it's been a few decades since it was done with, with mice in this, you know, populated community environment where it would get to a certain number where, where that, ex that exact thing starts happening is they start killing each other over basic resources that, you know, like there's just all kinds of crazy shit. There's, there's a collapse basically of, of the population of, of, uh, you know, this community of rats based on once it got to a certain number. And I really do feel like that that's kind of where we're at, um, as a species is, is that we've created, uh, a population and an environment where, where we're going to start killing, killing ourselves because of all of these, uh, all of these factors. But so there's a couple of couple of really interesting bits here. Um, first one, there's a, a great blog post by Scott Alexander that taught me this thought experiment. Um, imagine that you have a, an island with a thousand rats on it, right? Um, and this island has tons and tons of room, tons and tons of resources, and these rats are able to indulge themselves in whatever they want to do. They can do art and poetry. They're very uh, cultural rats. They can do whatever they want. They can do dance and they can they can think or they can get resources. They can build businesses. They can do whatever they want. Now, as the population begins to grow, what you start to see is that the rats who don't indulge in the non-essential pursuits of life end up being more effective 
and you start to select for rats, not only culturally in terms of the sort of mimetic evolution, but also genetically in terms of the temperament of the rats downstream that tend to do that. So let's say that this island has a carrying capacity of 10,000 rats. Get towards the 10,000, and what you start to see is that fewer and fewer rats do art because they actually need to spend more time just surviving and reproducing in order to not die. Then you get to the full carrying capacity, right? You hit 100%. What you have now is a situation in which any rat that chooses to do something which is non-essential to its existence is at a disadvantage because every rat that chooses to not do that is going to survive and reproduce more effectively. So what you do is you end up with a civilization which is indeed bigger, but has competed away all of the things that gave it culture and color and difference in any case. And I think that you can see this at least economically with the fact that you now need a two-parent household for the mm -hmm. most part to, to support uh, kids that are growing up and stuff like that. That what is it? Is it like real living wages have remained static since the seventies, something like that. Yeah. Graph, graphs that people can find that show that you think, okay, well, I mean, that's, that's a pretty shitty thought experiment, right? The fact that you can get to a stage where the requirement of what you have to do in the real world is so arduous that it actually competes away some of the things that kind of make life interesting and colorful and fulfilling. Um, yeah. On the flip side of that, um, based on what I've read and based on, again, this isn't my speciality, but based on the things that I've read, especially this most recent article, which seemed to be very well researched, you can create a graph um, that you can imagine is a, a perfect straight line in the middle coming out on both sides. You have men and women's ages with the lowest age at the bottom and the highest age at the top. So what it actually gives you is a shape, right? It's a shape of the population. And what you want to have is a population that looks like a pyramid. You want a, a, mm -hmm. a typical triangle. So you have more young than you do old. Reason being that young people are the ones that work, they're the ones that drive GDP, they're the ones that drive innovation, and they're the ones that look after the fucking old, right? So the interesting thing when you look at these graphs is you can actually see into the future because you can't, you can't birth a five-year-old, right? You, you can only ever birth people this year, and then you lock in the shape of the graph at that level for the rest of time. So this guy went through, and it's really, really great. It's called Mike from Pirate Wires. You can Google the population um, collapse article if you're interested. And what you see in a lot of countries is this ever-increasing pear-type shape. So it's fat in the middle. But what's a, what's a pear when it starts to get a little bit older? It ends up becoming this inverted triangle where you have an ever-increasing number of old people, remembering that the healthcare and uh, longevity in terms of lifespan, fantastic, great, right? But what drives GDP? What drives growth? What What is it that people care for the, those that have come before them? Um, so it looks like population might just glance off the bottom of 10 billion around about 2,100, just skim it. But you're way below replacement rate in everywhere except for um, Africa, basically. And the single biggest correlate, and this is really sort of uncomfortable thing to see, is that education of women seems to be one of the biggest biggest determinants of, of this uh, reduction yeah. in, in, in having kids because women can go and do other things. You know, yeah. their sole sense of purpose doesn't come from from having children. And yeah. think about this as a thought experiment, man. What about, what if there is a choice that needs to be made on a population 
around whether or not women can derive a sense of meaning from something that isn't raising children or you have a civilization that can't continue. Like, what if that's the choice? I don't, I really hope and don't think that it is. I think that there's probably a way that culturally you can kind of reignite the desire for people to actually have a family. You can put family back on a pedestal. You can reinvigorate marriage as an institution. I think that there's ways that you can fix this. But like, that's a, that's a potential thing that could happen. Chris, are you telling women to get back in the kitchen? Is that what you just said? I don't work for Burger King, <laughs> so I wouldn't say that. Yeah. Uh, but my point being that, yeah. The, no, I hear you. This population stuff is interesting and, and yeah. pretty fucking scary. No, it is. I agree. I, you know, to me, the the big question that that begs asking uh, or or figuring out rather the answer to is is what is the right number or is there one? You know, is, is that is there an ideal you know ballpark number population wise, both in this country, you know, the 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 global population. Obviously, technology plays an enormous role on what that right number is. But I, I do think, to me at least, it feels like most places that you go in this country, if I just compare it to, say, when I was a kid driving around, you know, going on road trips versus what it's like now, it's vastly different. You know, everywhere is fucking busy, you know, and it, and it, it, it is. I mean, like, you can you be sure in, in- that That's not your- um sort of newfound fatherly disgruntledness like that's, when you become a dad like just there's, traffic there's no the way road. there's no way that that's not at least a part of it um <laughs> having said that like you can be in in bumfuck alabama at two in the morning and there's still tons of traffic on an interstate you pull into a, a pilot or a flying j and it's fucking packed like there's lines waiting to get gas like it, it's it's unbelievable. You know, I've, I've never seen anything like it. And, and just in the last few years, it's, it's kind of grown into that. But, um, to me, that's, that's kind of the big question. I'd be curious, you know, to ask some of, you've had some really, really phenomenal guests on and, and I love your show. Um, but to ask some of those, uh, proponents of, of some of these studies, you know, is that, is there a, a magic number or is there a, an ideal scenario where this is kind of the, the best case scenario or the, the happiest medium of, of all of it. That's um, a really good question. I, I think a, a, an interesting thing to ask would be, what are we optimizing for? You know, if you're a, a pure utilitarian, you would yeah. say, well, the maximum number of people is the maximum amount of utility because it gives the most number of souls or brains or minds <clears> or whatever the, the, the opportunity to exist. And, and hopefully if you can continue, but I mean, what is that? That ends up with a, a, a world that has, a hundred billion pages until you run out of space perhaps. And yeah. then you end up in like that surrogates film with Bruce Willis, where we're all just in an armchair every day living yeah. in the virtual reality pumped yeah. with MDMA through our eyeballs. Yeah, so, nothing wrong uh, with that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. I've got, uh, uh, you, you mentioned about, um, you mentioned about statistics. I've got an interesting, we've sort of touched on abortion a couple of times today. This is really, really surprising to me. So I, I put this in my newsletter a couple of months ago. Uh, women vote to restrict abortion more than men. Polls consistently hmm. show that women are more likely than men to support a reduction on the abortion limit. 28% of men supported a reduction versus 46% of women. That was YouGov in 2011. 24% of men versus 49% of women. That was 2012. And then 35% of men versus 59% of women. And that was Angus Reid. And one of the synopsises of this sort of overall study was, this raises some pretty big implications. The most obvious being that if it were left to women to vote on the issue with men out of the picture, there's a good chance that the result would be in favor of restricting abortion. On the flip side, if only men voted, they'd almost certainly vote in favor of women's reproductive rights. And that was from The Guardian, which is a very progressive newspaper in the mm. UK. 
Well, I, I'm, I'm actually not that surprised by that uh, in that societally uh, there is a huge double standard with that, you know, um, and, and by that, I mean, is that there's this huge progressive push in terms of, you know, my body, my choice, and, and I get to decide. And, you know, if you don't have a uterus, you don't get to fucking tell me anything, blah, blah, blah. And, and I, I am actually, um, you know, politically, I'm, I'm much more of a pro-choice uh, with everything, whether it's, you know, your body, whether it's with your firearms, you know, your house, your livelihood, your fucking taxes, whatever. Like, I, I'm a, a big fan of just being left the fuck alone and on all fronts. However... To me, that there, there's this this weird double standard in that a lot of times these groups push for this, um, you know, I get to decide and fuck you, you don't have a say. However, if I go through with it, I get to hold you accountable, right? And to me, it's like if, if you, you should you should null and void the capability or ability to hold the father responsible for something if you're not willing to let him have a say in it. You know, to me, you, you shouldn't get it both ways that way. It's a little bit neither here nor there, but I, I do think that's relevant in terms of this study that you're talking about. I, I would say that that's probably why, you know, is, is that, you know, women, I think, either, even if it's subconsciously, are probably going to side with with that uh, more so from a protection standpoint than than men will, because men want the ability to to have that out. They're still invested. Yeah. Well, I mean, this was this was one of the criticisms online that um, women, even pro uh, choice women said, "See, this is this is an obvious demonstration of men's patriarchal overreach. <laughs> that they are trying to still control women's bodies by giving them access to abortion. So it's yeah. like, look, you're damned if you do, and you're damned if yeah. you don't with this. Yeah. But I, I I do think that you're that you're right here. Another thing to consider is that during these debates, um, a lot of the time at the moment, especially in the US, but also in the UK." Groups are pitched against each other, right? It's men against women. It's women against trans women. It's blacks against whites and Asians and Jews and whatever, right? Everybody's split up into these groups. And a lot of the time, people don't realize that they're not fighting that group. The call is coming from inside of their own fucking house, right? Yeah. So a bunch of things I've learned over the last couple of years. When it comes to slut shaming, right? <laughs> the vast majority of slut shaming comes from women about women. Yeah. Why? Well, it's because slut shaming is a price enforcement mechanism to ensure that access to sex is no easier than any group of women wants to have. Like, slut shaming doesn't come from men for the most part. I could say that's because we've got this sort of nefarious investment. Again, like there's always ulterior motives to these things. But women have an investment in ensuring that the price of sex, if you're prepared to give a blowjob on the third date, Mike, like which you maybe. Uh, <laughs> if you're prepared to give a blowjob on the third date, but I'm not prepared to until the fifth date, yeah. I want to raise your price up by having this sort of cartel enforcement mechanism, right? So slut shaming. Where you think about seeing it online, like a lot of the time it would be like these men telling us what what we can do with our sexual proclivities and such like, you're okay, abortion. Again, like the, the finger gets pointed at men. You go, well, hang on a second. Think about pretty much every mother as soon as you've had a child, I imagine, and I would be fascinated to find out, to get this studied, I imagine once you've had a kid as a mum, your view on abortion must at least be shaken a little bit. You know, the magic yeah. of, of lying there with a newborn child on your chest, just oxytocin flooding through your body, and then all of the beautiful memories that you're going to get as you bring this kid up, right? Like, can you see abortion in the same light 
Yeah, my guess is no. I, I think with most women, there's at least some shift in, in their, their thinking towards it. Yeah, Absolutely there is. And then, you know, you, you pick whatever else it is that you want around these sort of topics, whether it be slut-shaming, yeah. whether it be – and then <laughs> it, when it comes to body positivity, the body positivity movement as well, you yeah. know, like m- most of the um, pressure that comes about women's appearance isn't coming from men. Like yeah. you're, you're saying that the same guys that can't notice that they've got sauce on their shirt are also yeah. <laughs> able to tell with unbelievable dexterity that there's like tiger stripe stretch marks on the side yeah. of your legs. Like that's not yeah. our game that yeah. we're playing. That's good. No, I know. I mean, a a, uh, a quick tour of a of a pub or bar scene at two in the morning will tell you that guys aren't aren't that uh, picky about a lot of things. Um. Yeah, no, it's all it's all fascinating stuff. I uh, I, I would kind of like to get uh, your as we wrap up here, your take uh, both life ethos why and kind of why you started the podcast and where you want to go with it. For a long time, I didn't really understand how the world worked or me, uh, and that was a big question for me. You know, this we got halfway through my my, my story about so not really knowing where I was going or what I was doing. And um, I was searching for answers to how to operate in the world in a way that would make me feel fulfilled and connected. And I realized that the default desires that I had, the things that I wanted, or that I thought that I wanted, weren't serving me. And I wanted to find out what I should want. I wanted to know what I wanted to want and not just what I wanted. And I sort of settled on the fact that life should be lived by design, not default, that living intentionally and deliberately is the most important thing that I can find because it's the first mover from which everything else comes, right? If you don't do that, the best thing that you can hope to be is a rich, successful, or famous slave, right? You're a slave to the confused chemical signals of your body or the social norms or the way that you've dealt with past traumas or your fears or your paths of least resistance or all of that stuff. That's a miserable existence. So the goal with the show was firstly for me, I wanted to work out how to understand myself and the world around me. And then It's been four years, nearly 500 episodes, people like Jordan Peterson, Seth Godin, Ryan Holiday, Robert Greene, you know, like world champions in in thought and and understanding yourself and designing a life. And um, after a little while, I realized, well, hang on a second, there's like a, you know, a good sized audience here of a few million people a month that are tuning in to listen to this. Well, okay, how, how do I both continue to sort of grow myself and then serve them in a way i'd never really been in this sort of serving mode before i didn't really know what that meant i never really felt like a a protector presider provider type situation and then i i kind of didn't that that was also fulfilling um so that's it man like i the world has changed so much that the wisdom that we used to have no longer applies in the same sort of way and yet the wise people of every generation discover the same truths so what does it mean that some of the answers are already out there and yet they need to be probably communicated and applied in a way which is a little bit novel and, and, and understands the current context that we're in? And I think that one of the advantages I have, I'm 34, 
Uh, but I spent all of my 20s as a bro, right? Like I was just a professional party boy. I was a professional yeah. party boy doing like chest and buys and, and then going to the nightclub and waking up. And Skipping leg day. And, yeah, exactly. Like a decade. And yeah. I think that trying to really bring, you know, your Jordan Petersons or your Robert Greens or your Ryan Holidays or whatever, really trying to bring them down to earth and go, okay, like how does this grow corn? Like, this is a great idea, but tell me, like, what does this mean for my life as a person who doesn't quite have a full grasp on how to operate in the world? And it seems to be, it seems to be working, man. Like, people really seem to resonate with it. I love to do it. I love to have conversations like this and learn about different things. And for a long time, I never embraced my curiosity. On the, I, I'm sure you can imagine on the front door of a nightclub, you don't really have many opportunities to say, oh, yeah, before you go in, mate, have you ever considered <laughs> why it is that we're struggling to get a grand unified theory that can get yeah. quantum quantum gravity and general relativity and mix them together? It's like, hi, mate, bye, mate, get in the club, yeah. mate. Like, that's, that's what yeah. you're doing. Yeah. So for a long time as a young person, I wasn't like embracing the person that I was fully, me. Uh, that was the, a big lesson. Okay, I want to live deliberately. I want to live by design, not default. I can do that through the show. I can. I now have access to pretty much anybody on the planet that I want to speak to, which is a, a, a fucking blessing and, and blows my mind. Yeah. Um, and then I get to have a conversation with them and like a, a few million people a month tune in and it makes their lives better as well. And yeah. it's all just part of this sort of journey thing that we're going on. And it is hard work, dude. Like, it's so much hard work. Um, but it's worth it. Like, it, it really does feel like it's worth it. And I, I haven't done much before that's felt this much like it's worth it. And no, no one came out of one of my club nights and said to me, dude, do you know what it is? I was lost and alone and in an existential pit of despair. But man, when I had those one pound Jaeger bombs and I heard that banging hip hop music, <laughs> dude, you changed my life. Like no one yeah. says that, but I get messages like that a lot. And I'm not doing it for the, you know, showy triumph message to put it online, but it fulfilled me in a way like existentially that I didn't know existed. It was like taking a drink when I didn't know I was thirsty. Oh, this is what purpose feels like. This is what fulfillment feels like. This is what actually yeah. creating a community and contributing to it feels like. No, I, I think it's brilliantly put. Um, you know, you're you're a super fascinating guy. The the show is awesome. I love your show, and I, I I'm you. inspired by a lot of the guests that you've had on, and and I'd love to have uh, a number of them on mine as well. I couldn't agree more. In, in that, uh, you know, to me, that age old question of, uh, you know, what what is the the key to happiness, or or what is uh, the meaning of life? To me, it, it's one word. It's purpose. You know, it it really is. No matter what that purpose is, the the happiest people that I've ever met are people that, that have a, a legitimate reason to get up in the morning and do what they do. And, you know, I, I, I have an interesting uh, industry that I work in, in in providing, you know, personal protection dogs to high net worth folks. On an, and I have for over a decade. And so is that what, sorry, is that what the uh, silhouette is on your hat? Uh, th so this one is, is the dog food treats and supplements company that I, I thought that it was I a own. dog. It is. Um, so this is, is team dog. And then, uh, Tricos is the, is the protection and police and military dog side. But, um, but it's interesting, you know, I've, I've had, you know, a lot of clients over the years that are all of, of significant means. And some of them are some of the happiest people, uh, and most fulfilled and purpose driven, pleasant people I've ever, ever met in my life. And some of them are, are some of the most miserable, unhappy people I've ever met uh, in my life as well. And, and, you know, to me, that that money doesn't buy happiness thing is, is half right. Um, you know, money doesn't buy happiness if you're not purposeful and, and fulfilled in what you do. Um, if you are purposeful and fulfilled, money is going to absolutely fucking enhance that, uh, you know, because 
that's the reality of it is that money, money gives you freedom and flexibility to, to do what you want. And if what you're doing is something you legitimately love, then, then it's just going to magnify that. But, uh, awesome stuff, man. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on. Uh, like I said, I love your show. I'd love to, if you ever find yourself in Dallas, I'd love to have a part two, uh, you know, in person and, and go, it, go even I'm further down. into some of these stuff. I'm but, absolutely down. Um, yeah. So, well, thank you much. Um, anything you want to add, uh, where we can find you? Yeah. So if people want to subscribe to the show, just search Modern Wisdom wherever you're listening, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. We'll put a link to the, the Jordan Peterson episode. I think that's probably a good place to yeah. start. So if people want to check it out, that'll sure. be linked in the show notes below. And then uh, I have a free reading list of 100 books that you should read before you die. Uh, it's totally free and you can sign up if you go to chriswillx.com slash books. That'll probably be in the show notes as well. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, thank you again. I appreciate it. Uh, for you guys, the listener, thanks for tuning in. As always, I hope you enjoyed it. I know I sure did. And until next time, this is Mike Drop. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Nick, the host of the UFO Chronicles podcast, with first-hand witnessed accounts of the strange and unexplained, covering UFOs, cryptids, conspiracies, and the paranormal. Real people, real encounters. So come with us on the journey into the unknown. UFO Chronicles podcast is available to listen to on all apps. I'll see you soon. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.